From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The exhausted majority describes how much of America feels about politics today. We'll explore the idea and offer a ray of hope. We are mistaking the extremes for the average. And if we stop doing that, then we might be able to bring down a little bit of the temperature and we might be able to feel less existential dread in our political system so that we can start to make some incremental progress on the things that are really slowing us down as a country. Then, when her husband got a terminal diagnosis, Joanne Tubbs Kelly of Boulder knew it wouldn't be the illness that ended his life, but an option that gave him more control. It allowed him so much peace of mind, knowing that if he couldn't stand the suffering anymore, He had the means to end his suffering. What you get on a daily basis from Colorado Public Radio is thanks in large part to an ever-growing and dedicated community of support. As a member, you do more than listen. You help fund CPR. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. It was before an earlier midterm election in 2018 that the term exhausted majority first appeared, coined by a group called More in Common, which fights political polarization in Western democracies. Four years later, and we might think of Americans as even more exhausted. Stephen Hawkins of Englewood, Colorado, is research director at that global nonprofit More in Common. Good to see you again, Stephen. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. So this term exhausted majority has been used now by the independent candidate Andrew Yang, Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz. It's been on the front page of The New York Times. Remind us what it means and how you and your team coined it. So the term exhausted majority refers to two-thirds of Americans and There are four Fs that we use to kind of keep this simple. The first is that there are people who feel fed up by the division in politics. Okay. The second is that they are people who don't feel well represented by either of the extreme poles in our political system. The third is that they are people who feel tired by all of the division. And then the fourth is that they are people who say that in the political game, they want leaders to find points of compromise. They don't just want one side to double down and stand their ground. And this is the majority of Americans. We describe this as two-thirds of Americans. Yeah, 67%. Well, how is it that that desire can exist in the population and that not be reflected so much in our representation? The reason that there's this conflict is because our political system doesn't really allow for much diversity of political parties. We have a two-party system, Uh and Duverger's laws as political scientist captures this dynamic very well. When you have a first-past-the-post political system where the candidate who gets the most votes, regardless of whether that's a majority, wins the seat, and second and third place get no representation, you see that the party system converges towards just two options. And when you have just a binary choice, you have a political system that has a lot of diversity within the population in terms of what they want, but just two options. And then people tend to vote against the party that they dislike the most. Mm -hmm. Do you think that exhausted majority is a different way of saying moderate? 
not in the way that we're using it, no. In our study that we released in 2018, we define a group that we refer to as moderates. It's about one in seven Americans. Uh But the exhaustive majority is broader than that. And it includes people who vote Democrat. It includes people who vote Republican. And it includes a lot of people who don't vote at all and aren't engaged in politics. And so one way of thinking about the exhaustive majority is we have people who say, listen, I vote Democrat, but I just I find some of the excess on the left in activist culture, some of the changes in our culture more generally. I just don't agree with them. And I find it difficult to talk about politics because of people on the left. And at the same time, I won't ever vote Republican. Uh-huh. And you have Republicans who might say, uh, listen, I, I'm a Republican because maybe I'm pro-life, but I find the excessive division and some of the claims around election fraud in the Republican Party uh, very scary. And so there's this tension that people feel within them. And we describe the people that express those tensions as members of the exhausted majority. The exhausted majority. Well, you describe this as a function of our fundamental political system, you know, the two-party system. And and certainly there have been independent candidates and uh, you'll hear libertarians and greens and all sorts of folks say, yes, there's a there's a better way. But it's never really manifest in this country. So to identify the exhausted majority is one thing. But from there, aren't you just pushing on a rope in this country? Pushing on a rope, meaning there's there's nowhere for the exhausted majority to turn. I suppose. I think the value of recognizing the exhausted majority is to help us understand the degree to which we are misunderstanding our political opponents. Now, this is something we've done a lot of research on. We're uh, going to be releasing a report about this here in, in the next month. But if you ask Republicans to describe Democrats, they will give you the most ideologically progressive version of Democrats and say that's what the average Democrat thinks and vice versa. And by drawing attention to the exhausted majority, part of what we're trying to say is we are mistaking the extremes for the average. And if we stop doing that, then we might be able to bring down a little bit of the temperature in our political conflict. And we might be able to feel less existential dread and threat in our political system so that we can start to make some incremental progress on the things that are really slowing us down as a country. And so is there a party for the exhausted majority to turn to? No, there's not. But by recognizing that there is deep frustration at the excess in our political conflict, on the left and on the right, felt within individuals at the same time, they're frustrated by the left and the right. Mm-hmm. We're trying to draw attention to the moderation that was, was attractive to so many Americans. In the four years since this idea emerged of the exhausted majority, have any holes manifest in the theory? Well, if you talk to everyday Americans, and I would encourage your listeners to do this, just talk to somebody the next time you're standing in line at TSA or you're waiting for your coffee. The experience that we have, and we do this all the time, and we work with partners that do this, is people walk away feeling really encouraged because they're surprised at the degree to which they find common ground, the degree to which they feel similarity to people who are different from them in certain ways, and including, especially including cross political lines. So that's the encouraging sign. The discouraging sign is when you look at our electoral outcomes. The political system doesn't reflect our um, the degree to which Americans are frustrated with partisan conflict. Nor their desire to connect, frankly. Indeed. Have you found candidates running to appeal to this exhausted majority? 
So in Ohio right now, the Democratic candidate for Senate, Tim Ryan, is running with an explicit appeal to the, quote, exhausted majority. This is part of his boilerplate stump speech. And he's running against J.D. Vance, who's the Republican candidate. And the way that he's doing this is he's specifically saying, I'm not the culture wars guy. And what he's trying to do there is distance himself from the hysteria sometimes that we see in social media, in activist culture that turns so many people away from the Democratic Party, um, while also distancing himself from the events of January 6th and the election denialism on the Republican right. Um, He's doing much better, I think, than uh, Democrats typically do in statewide races in Ohio. Right now, it's looking like he's probably neck and neck with J.D. Vance, probably less likely to win. Um, But he's outperforming um, where he should be as a Democrat. And that's an encouraging sign. Just reflecting on a bit of grim news, does the attack on Paul Pelosi feel like some kind of sick new watershed in U.S. politics? I mean, not to mention the conspiracy theories that have thrived in its wake. Sadly, it's more a part of a trend than it is a new era. Mm. Um, You know, in 2011, you had the Gabby Giffords shooting. In 2017, Republican Congressman Steve Scalise was shot by a left-wing anti-Trump man in, in Capitol Hill. And now in 2022, you have Paul Pelosi being attacked. The violence isn't new. The degree to which death threats are coming to members of Congress, according to the New York Times recently, increased tenfold from 2016 onwards. I think of election workers as well. And election workers too, yes. The number of death threats to members of Congress is now more than about, averaging more than one an hour. And so sadly, this is the, the context that we're in where there's a lot of threats of violence and some tiny fraction of often mentally unwell people act on those threats of violence. But sadly, and this isn't even only a trend here in the United States, in the UK, we've also seen in the last 10 years, we've seen two attacks and murders of members of parliament. Um, and so it's a, it's a broad phenomenon. And sadly, it's not new. I think it's safe to say that former President Trump's social media presence, his reality TV approach, can be exhausting, a kind of constant seeking of attention. Uh, In Colorado, there's a similar vibe from Congresswoman Lauren Boebert. You know, on the left, Eric Swalwell may fit the bill. Certainly, they have supporters who eat that up. But um, Stephen Hawkins of More in Common, is exhaustion a tool? Exhaustion is a tool, maybe slightly differently than the way that you are framing it, though, at least in terms of those examples. So more in common works in an international scope. And so sometimes we look at these questions on the international stage. And exhaustion is a success for Russia. They are so happy when Americans are exhausted, divided, and feeling despairing about democracy. That is an excellent outcome for them. They are hitting their KPIs Uh, internally at the Internet Research Agency at Russia (laughs) when we feel divided. There's a great book by um, Jonathan Rausch, who's a senior fellow at Brookings called The Constitution of Knowledge. What he lays out is that one of the approaches for misinformation and uh, information warfare more generally is not to try and correct 
or address one specific narrative with one other. It's to just plant lots of competing ideas that just bewilder and confuse the public Mm. because they don't know which of the seven or 12 claims that are being spread through the media or being spread on social media are correct. And that sense of fatigue and despair and confusion is a good outcome for the status quo. So powerful status quo actors benefit from people being exhausted. Is the antidote to disconnect from politics? It's an antidote many people are choosing. Mm -hmm. But is it the antidote that we want for the citizenry of the United States to be turning off the news, tuning out, and just relying on instincts and heuristics in order to decide how to vote and what to think? It's not ideal. Uh, Another antidote is something I alluded to earlier in the conversation, which is interactions with strangers are... And this is this in my world, this is something which has been researched very extensively. Interactions with strangers consistently surprise people in terms of how positive they are. So if you want to get away from the noise, I can't blame you if you turn off the news. But if you want to feel better about the world and about politics and society, go talk to somebody you don't know. And you will almost always walk away from that encounter feeling um, a sense of renewed optimism about our capacity to find similarities and our capacity to overcome differences. Stephen, thank you for being with us again. Thanks so much, Ryan. Stephen Hawkins of Englewood is research director for More in Common, the global nonprofit fights polarization. U.S. Senate candidates here have found a small patch of common ground when it comes to immigration, like wanting protection for DACA recipients. But CPR's Caitlin Kim reports that a bit of bipartisan agreement may only go so far. Alan Munoz Valenciano's parents brought him from Mexico to the United States as a young child. He's one of the lucky ones. He was able to live and work legally in the U.S. under the DACA program. But he's not optimistic about the program's future. Yeah, DACA is definitely dying, and I think we'll be lucky to have another year of it. And that could leave him and thousands of other DACA recipients in Colorado in an uncomfortable limbo. He works as regional manager of organizing programs for Voces Unitas Action Fund. He's trying to get voters fired up and get members of Congress to make DACA and immigration reform a priority. It's both frustrating and challenging. Being this political football that... It's just being tossed back and forth without really developing any sort of answer to the issues. People lose interest. People don't want to be engaged. When it comes to Colorado's Senate race, both Democratic incumbent Michael Bennett and Republican challenger Joe O'Day are talking about immigration reform. Munoz Valenciano's organization endorsed Bennett for re-election. He worked on the 2013 immigration reform bill that got 68 votes in the Senate. But House Republicans refused to bring that bill up for a vote. At a Democratic-Latino voter event in Glenwood Springs, Republican Don Click had a simple question. So why is it so hard to bring a group in? It, ran into, it just ran into a brick wall. I mean, Bennett's Republican challenger, O'Day, is also talking immigration reform. He relates it to the experience of people at his construction company. I've got guys that have worked for me for 15 years. They've been on different visas. They're here legally. And they can't get through the citizenship. That's ridiculous to me. That's just ridiculous. We can fix it all. I think I can get 60 votes on that. It's been nearly a decade since the last time an immigration bill cleared 60 votes in the Senate. And in the House, the brick wall remains. House Minority Leader Republican Kevin McCarthy 
says he's not interested in comprehensive immigration reform if his party retakes the chamber. First-time political candidate O'Day dismisses that obstacle. I don't care what he says. I'm going to go talk to him, and I'm going to say, look, this makes great sense. If we're going to do that, let's have a comprehensive bill that addresses the DACA kids. Let's get their citizenship taken care of. Let's make sure that we also fix our immigration system. O'Day says he's not willing to consider DACA as a standalone bill. It's got to be part of a larger immigration reform bill that includes border security. Bennett would do either. Still, O'Day's optimistic take on passing comprehensive reform isn't winning over immigration advocates like Chris Davis with Cirque Action Fund. I would ask Joe, like, who do you think is going to come to the table on this? I, I don't see him being able to get 10 Republicans to do that. For the most part, groups that have been working on immigration reform for decades agree that O'Day is taking a more moderate tone than the rest of his party on immigration. But they add his actions, like a recent visit to the border or linking migration to drug smuggling, undercuts that message. Alex Sanchez, president and CEO of Voces Unidas Action Fund, is worried about what the continuing stalemate over immigration could mean for Latino political interest and engagement. I think the larger cause and effect of lack of action and when we don't see ourselves and our values reflected in any of the two dominant political platforms and systems, we tend not to vote. Sanchez believes the status quo benefits Republicans because Latinos have historically voted more for Democrats. But there are many individual members of the GOP who are also surprised about where the party has come down on immigration reform. In Glenwood Springs, Republican voter Don Click is tired of the blame game that both parties play. He thinks there's plenty of blame to go around for not passing major immigration reform since Ronald Reagan. I think it'd be such an economic boom for us if we, as a nation, if we embrace these people and bring them in and, and allow them to hold jobs and, uh, and become an active member in our society. It's an argument many hope will sway Republicans in Congress. While Bennett and O'Day think comprehensive reform is necessary and will eventually get passed, the big question remains when. I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. Election day is tomorrow. Your ballot must be in a drop box or a polling place by 7 p.m. And be sure to check out our voter guide at CPR.org. We will also be live on the radio and on streaming election night with local and national results. When we come back, why a terminal illness doesn't have to mean a complete loss of control. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Rachel Estabrook from the CPR Newsroom. Our podcast, Who's Gonna Govern?, brings you the candidates for Colorado's top offices in their own words. Check it out before you fill out your ballot. Who's Gonna Govern? in your favorite podcast feed. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. When her husband got a terminal diagnosis, Joanne Tubbs Kelly of Boulder knew it wouldn't be the illness that ended his life. You see, long before, he told her that if he ever got really sick, if a doctor told him he only had a few months to live, he'd want to die on his own terms. Kelly's book, Walking Him Home, Helping My Husband Die with Dignity, is about that journey. She spoke with Andrea Dukakis. Describe how you learned your husband, Alan, had a terminal illness. Um, we first realized he was sick um, a good 10 years before he was diagnosed. 
when he started having very strange things happen in the middle of the night, when he would scream and yell, and he was sound asleep the whole time. He woke me up. I'm a light sleeper. But after a while, I started waking him up during these just frantic dreams, and he would tell me that he was fighting a, or running away from a herd of stampeding buffaloes, or he was fighting some hoodlums in a garage, or all sorts of really scary, awful dreams, and he would punch and he would hit, etc. He also was exhibiting some physical symptoms. He was falling a lot more. He was having bladder issues. And so we realized something was wrong. We didn't know what it was. We started making appointments with various specialists and sleep doctors and whatnot. And it took a very long time to figure out what was really going on. But ultimately, we were introduced to the correct person who was a movement disorder specialist um, at the healthcare system where he was a patient. And that was back in 2017. And his illness was in the family of Parkinson's disease, but it wasn't Parkinson's. Is that right? Yep, that's right. It is referred to as a Parkinsonian illness. So it's called um, Parkinson's Plus, or commonly it's just called Parkinson's on steroids. The idea of how your husband wanted to die had come up in conversation well before you knew something was wrong. Tell us about that conversation or those conversations. Yeah. Um, Alan believed strongly and said from the moment I met him almost that we treat our pets better than we treat our elderly people in our society. And he believed firmly that it was okay to help usher an animal to help them ease their pain. And he believed that the same right should be extended to human beings if they were ill, if they were dying anyway. And back then, it was obviously a hypothetical question. Did you think anything of it back then? Absolutely not. I thought it was one of Alan's charming little things that he said at dinner parties. <laughs> um but I had no idea when he first started saying it. I had no idea he was ill. I had no idea he was going to become ill. Um, and I really wanted him to stay healthy and live a long life with me. Colorado has a law, a medical aid and dying law, and it's fairly new. Voters approved it in 2016. The law has some pretty strict parameters. Will you tell us about it? Oh, I'd be delighted. Um, in order to qualify for medical aid in dying in Colorado, you, first of all, you have to be a resident. And I think you have to be over 18. I'm pretty sure that's the cutoff age. Um, but the more relevant um, criteria for most of us, um, number one is you have to have a fatal illness with six months or less left to live. And this has to be um, affirmed by two of your medical providers. Um, for Alan, it was his neurologist and one of the doctors in the palliative care team who said, yep, you got it. You got that one covered. But one of the most important ones is that you must prove that you have decisional capacity. And what that means is that you can make good decisions on your own behalf. Um, and that you're not being um, pushed or coerced or encouraged even. Um, it's your decision. You must be able 
to ingest the medication yourself. And when I say ingest, I mean there are provisions in the law that if you have a a feeding tube, for example, as long as you can push the plunger on the feeding tube, somebody else can put the medication into the feeding tube, uh, but you have to push the plunger. So there there are other mechanisms for getting the medication into your body, um, and I am not an expert on this. I would highly recommend anybody consult with their doctor about the fine points concerning that. And we'll talk in a minute about the progression of Alan's disease and uh, what led him to take advantage of the law. But before his diagnosis, Alan was working as a handyman. He'd worked for a larger company before. When did it become too hard for him to do that handyman work? Well, I can't give you an exact date. It was sort of an organic process where I noticed, for example, that he couldn't figure out which he loved to cook. So he couldn't, but he couldn't figure out which dish he needed to start first in order to get supper on the table at six o'clock, for example. He would start the vegetable first and then put the potato in the oven to bake. So I noticed that he was having cognitive or executive function challenges. And I don't know when his clients started noticing it, or if they ever did. But he was definitely showing signs of um, cognitive issues by, let's say, 2016, approximately. Um, But the really lovely thing about all of this is that we had been carefully planning for our retirements, and we both planned to retire in 2016. So as he became um, more and more physically disabled and less able to handle his work mentally, uh, we were working towards retiring. And it made absolutely no impact whatsoever on our financial situation for both of us to retire just a few months earlier. And it was a blessing that we could. Right. You were lucky. You had the resources and you had planned for it. Many caregivers die before the person they're caring for does just because the job is so stressful. Um, Your duties with Alan included moving him from his bed to the wheelchair, taking him to the bathroom. How did you manage that physically and emotionally with someone who had been so able before? Yeah, he was a really athletic person. He was a ace skier and so coordinated. Um, He was pretty amazing. So it was hard emotionally to watch him fall apart. And I got a therapist lined up early on in this process because I needed help dealing with it emotionally. And physically, it was really challenging because Alan outweighed me by a good 80 pounds. And it was hard on my back moving him, for example, from his bed to his wheelchair or from his wheelchair to the toilet. All of those jobs just took an incredible amount of, first of all, patience, and secondly, uh, physical strength that I just didn't have. I think in the book, you talk with a little guilt about some of the frustrations of being a caregiver. Some of them were big. Some of them were little. Alan's wheelchair would scrape the walls um, in the house and, you know, that didn't make you very happy. How did you deal with the frustration of of being a caregiver? 
Um, once again, it was hard. <laughs> um, I did occasionally lose my temper, and it wasn't pretty. But I never lost it at Allen per se, but it was, why do you keep banging into the, our newly painted walls? Because we had done a major remodel to make the house appropriate for someone in a wheelchair. And so all the drywall was new, and all the doorways were wide. And to watch all of that just get destroyed in less than really nine months um, was hard for me. And I was looking forward to um, having it put back together. But I didn't want the put back together to happen because Alan was gone. So it was a lot of conflict in my brain. I wanted this, but I also wanted that, and I couldn't have both. Joanne Tubbs Kelly is the author of Walking Him Home, Helping My Husband Die with Dignity. She lives in Boulder. She told CPR's Andrea Dukakis that when her husband required skilled nursing, she feared he wasn't getting the attention he needed. There were many little things, uh, you know, medication management, and they wouldn't leave the, the his call button where he could reach it, and he couldn't move in bed. He was stuck wherever they put him. Um, so he couldn't reach the dresser if they left the call button on the dresser. And I kept having to remind them that they needed to pin the call button to his shirt. And, you know, probably 90% of the time they got it right. But the other 10% were disastrous because he couldn't call somebody when he needed help. So it was hard. And they did. They were doing a great job. I don't want anybody to think that they weren't, but they were understaffed, as many, many facilities were at that point, and as they still are, and maybe even more so to this day with COVID and all. Right. I want to note that this was before the pandemic, um, and you know that made people a lot more worried because they couldn't see their family member or friend, and. Uh, People living there were very isolated. Did you ever think about what it would have been like if Alan had been sick during the worst of COVID? Oh, yes, I thought about it. And it scared the bejesus out of me. <laughs> um, my sister was in an assisted living facility during COVID, and she died during COVID. And it was so hard. And, you know, other people from our support group were in facilities, and their spouses were getting their hospice certification so that they could go into the facility and spend time with them. I mean, it was, it was a crazy time for everybody. And the facilities were trying so hard, and the staff were trying so hard, and there was just not a whole lot of options. So, yeah, COVID really added a whole nother layer of pain and complexity to the whole thing. And Alan went into hospice care at your home. People came into your home, and that was about six weeks before he ended up at the nursing home. But how hard was it for him to get approval from his doctors to take advantage of medical aid and dying? At the initial meeting, they did, nobody agreed to anything. What they said was, come back when you're sicker and we'll decide then. But obviously he was able to take advantage of the law. Absolutely, yes. Um, in August of 2018, I believe it was, his neurologist referred him to hospice. And at that point in time, we realized it was time to apply for 
do the official application for medical aid in dying. And so that's when we started filling out the forms. Alan couldn't write. I had to fill out the forms for him, and then he signed it with an X, sort of. (laughs) Um, But then there's a very precise process that you need to follow to get approval. You have to make a written request. You have to make two verbal requests. So he entered the skilled nursing facility, and two days after, he lands in this totally new living situation. Um, He needed to go in and have his interview, his official interview with the palliative care team. And, you know, they made me leave the room so that they could make sure that Alan was not being coerced by me or anybody else. And I think it was about three weeks after that interview that he got notified, or we were notified. I got a letter saying, your husband has been approved for medical aid in dying. And that was when he was so relieved, just completely. It, it allowed him so much peace of mind, knowing that if he couldn't stand the suffering anymore, he had the means to end his suffering. Leading up to the day that Alan died, it was January of 2020, you had to do this trial run for him to take the cocktail of medications so that nothing went wrong. Tell us about the cocktail and why you had to practice. Well, we had to practice because I was really stunned by this, but they checked. The hospice physician checked the day before he was ready Um, to ingest the medication to make sure that he could swallow four ounces of liquid in one sitting. Because with the medication, it's a combination of various um, drugs that have different actions on your body. And the medication combination that they're currently using, it tends to solidify if it sits out at room temperature for longer than a couple of minutes. And so Alan had to practice because the doctors wanted to make sure that he could drink four ounces of liquid in a very short period of time. And on the actual day, Beverly, my friend who I talked into uh, mixing up the medication for us, she was out in the kitchen stirring like crazy because she also um, knew that she only had a couple of minutes to get this to Alan so that he could drink it. And she discovered as she was mixing the powder and the liquid that all of these unexpected lumps had formed in it. And she had a little whisk and she was going like crazy whisking that um, that little jar of medication trying to make it lump-free for Alan. So she was stressed. All of us in the room were stressed because our husband or our father or our grandfather or our friend was about to die. So we had a different level of stress, and Alan was the most peaceful person in the room. (laughs) Let's talk about the day itself. Alan was at your home. He had come home from the nursing home. Could you set the scene for us? Who was there? The major players, I I realized the other night when I was thinking about this that 
Almost all of the people who were there that day had been at our wedding 22 and a half years earlier. Mm. And the exceptions are the grandchildren who weren't even a twinkle in their in their mommy's eyes at that point in time. You had stepchildren. Yes. Um, Alan's two daughters, Alexis and Megan, and then two of his grandchildren. In addition to those family members, there was also our minister. But he wasn't the actual person who married us. And then the other people were Beverly. She had played the cello at our wedding. And Andy and Linda, Andy had been Alan's best man. And so they brought soup and cookies and vegetables, and they just took such good care of us. And we, we all, we, we, the whole family, the whole everybody who was there, we, we made a big circle around Alan's bed, and we went around and we thanked him for various things. And it was really quite fun and amusing. And, you know, one daughter thanked him for um, always giving her good advice, whether she wanted it or not. And I thanked him for bringing me for coffee in bed every day for... 20-some-odd years. So it was very poignant. <laughs> and so then um, I spent a, a little while with him, and each of his daughters spent a little while with him. Was Alan at all fearful that day? Did he express uh, any hesitancy? None. He held my hand tightly the whole time. My fingers were so cramped they turned blue. But I think that that wasn't about fear. I think he was saying to me, I got this. You're going to be okay. I think that's what the hand squeezing was about. But no, he was totally unafraid. I had I was kind of mad at him. I wanted I wanted him to at least pretend that he was a little sad about leaving, but he was ready. He was so ready to go. So there was no fear. What happened after Alan took the medications? Um did you notice discomfort on his part? I saw no physical discomfort whatsoever. He, it didn't take him long before he started getting sleepy. I, you know, time was so fluid that day, it's hard to say, but I think maybe 10 minutes, maybe 20 minutes after he took the medication, he started falling asleep. And I squeezed his hand and I said, I love you. And he squeezed my hand back and he, he barely had voice. He whispered, I love you too. And that was our last conversation. And how long after that did he die? Well, that's an interesting question. Again, I, time was fluid. <laughs> but um, I checked in with our minister. I said, Scott, um, I thought it was about three hours. What do you think? And Scott said, yeah, I think it was probably closer to four, that he actually, his heart stopped beating, um, that he stopped breathing. But I, I can't give you... A good answer. The, the cheat sheet that we got from the pharmacist had actually said that it could take anywhere from eight minutes to two days or three days. I can't remember. And that just seemed like an awfully big span. But most people die within two hours of ingesting the medication. And Alan took a little longer because he was still young and his body was healthy, other than the fact that the neurons in his brain were out to lunch. After he died, did you have any thoughts like, oh, I want to, you know, I wish I had stopped this? Yes, of course. I mean, yes. I had those thoughts for years. I mean, it's been two and a half, almost three years since he died, and I still have those thoughts. 
thoughts. And it's not really regret that he used medical aid in dying to end his suffering. That's not the thought. The thought is, I wish he were here to put out the mousetraps for me. <laughs> you know, I wish he were here to hold me, to hug me. Yeah. You and Alan had talked about this option well before he knew he was very sick, as we said. But not everyone discusses what would happen if this were to arise. How do people have that kind of conversation? I think it's a very, very difficult conversation for a lot of people. And the good news is there are some wonderful tools online that you can download. The Conversation Project and Compassion and Choices, both organizations have just wonderful guidebooks and step-by-step, what do you want, what do you not want guides that help you say to your aging father or your mother in the early stages of dementia, hey, mom, I've been thinking about this. What would you like if you can no longer feed yourself? How would you like us to handle that? But in addition to talking to the people who are older than you, you need to be talking to the people who are younger than you because none of us has a guarantee. You know, my sister had a stroke at, I think she was 55 when she had her stroke, that completely changed her life. And she ended up living several years in a state that she would never have chosen for herself. So have the conversations with your parents and with other people that you love. That's my best advice. Joanne, thanks so much. Well, thank you for having me. Joanne Tubbs-Kelly is the author of Walking Him Home, Helping My Husband Die with Dignity. Kelly lives in Boulder and spoke with Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Who will be Colorado's next governor, the next U.S. senator, and who will represent us in the House of Representatives? This November, you get to choose. You also get to decide 11 questions, from legalizing psychedelic mushrooms to cutting the income tax. When your ballot leaves you with more questions than answers, Colorado Public Radio is here to help, in both English and Spanish, in the Voter's Guide at CPR.org. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Is it possible to miss a place you've never been? I think the answer is yes, because there's a spectacular building that got knocked down long before I moved to Colorado and that I think about all the time. I never saw it for myself, never went inside, yet I miss it. And I'm not alone, according to author Mark A. Barnhouse. His latest book is Vanished Denver Landmarks. I met him in July, where this bygone building once stood. Where are we and what used to be here? We're standing uh, near the corner of 16th and Curtis Streets in downtown Denver. This was the Tabor Grand Opera House. And Grand is right. Grand is right. Uh, Horace Tabor, who'd made a fortune from mining in Leadville, decided he wanted to play a bigger role in the capital city of Denver. So he came to Denver in 1879. He built the city's finest office building down on the corner of Larimer. And then two years later, he came up here to Curtis Street and gifted the city with its first major wonderful theater building. What stands here now, and where we are standing, is the Federal Reserve Branch Bank. Correct. uh, Which is a brutalist building that, you know, is very different from the Tabor Grand Opera House. Is it understandable to you that I miss a building I never knew, Mark? I mean, when I I look at the Tabor Grand, I just think, my goodness, if I could have been inside. 
I agree. I, I've been that way forever myself with old photographs of uh, old buildings, and that Tabor was heavily photographed. There's even one I have uh, seen that is taken in 1947, and it was dingy, it was dirty, but it was still beautiful. It had a 1,500-seat auditorium inside. The interior was as impressive as the exterior. Gas chandeliers? Gas chandeliers, beautiful carpets, cherry wood paneling, plush upholstery. I mean, and it was that, that sort of high Victorian grandeur. Murals, uh, a beautiful scenic mural painted above the proscenium arch. And of course, the famous stage curtain that was also painted. Uh, and somewhat prophetic in Tabor's case, since it was it talked about how fleet the works of man are, and then in the Panic of 1893, he lost all his money. Could you describe the architecture a bit? You said Victorian, I think. Well, yeah, Queen Anne is kind of the term, more of a commercial Queen Anne. Uh, the architect was Willoughby Edbrook. He was from Chicago, and he had sent his brother Frank Edbrook out to Denver, originally to supervise the office building's construction, and then he continued supervising here, and then Frank stayed in Denver and became our city's most prominent late 19th century architect. You called the Tabor Grand Opera House a gift to the city. It's not that he gave it to the he, city. No, it was a commercial enterprise to be sure. Yeah. And, you know, the shows had to make money. The building wasn't entirely an opera house. There was office space on all the floors uh, surrounding the auditorium space and, of course, retail on the street level. Torn down in 1964, but not because of urban renewal, which was the reason so many of Denver's great buildings were raised. Well, I would say yes and no to that, because in the 60s, in the 50s, really starting then, there was a whole push, not only in Denver, but in, in most large cities, to do urban renewal. And here in Denver, before the Denver Urban Renewal Authority got really going downtown, some private industries around here wanted to clean up the area. And so the Central Bank and Trust Company, which was not far from here at 15th and Arapahoe, formed a realty company. And they started buying up nearby blocks and tearing things down. You, you described at this point the Tabor Opera House as being dingy. Yeah. It, it was dingy, but it was still beautiful. Uh, it just needed cleaning up and probably updating with you know new plumbing and whatnot but it could have been saved. But it wasn't. It was not. Uh, originally, the spot was slated to be an apartment building, uh, similar to Brooks Towers, which was another one of the central bank's projects. And which used to be the tallest building in Denver. I think it was, yes. And they had announced a, an apartment project for this site, but also at the same time, the Federal Reserve Bank was in very cramped quarters over a block away at 17th and Arapahoe. And they were talking about possibly moving the Federal Reserve Branch Bank to the suburbs, which had all the downtown banks kind of in a tizzy, hmm. because they, the, the main function in those days, everybody wrote checks for everything. And so the Federal Reserve Bank, all these checks would be loaded onto armored trucks and brought to the bank for processing. Huh. It was a clearinghouse. So this was actually built mostly to process, you know, checks. This Federal Reserve Bank that we're standing next yeah. to in the brutalist style, yeah. which, by the way, comes from the French for concrete, even though it has a brutal quality to it. Yes. Uh, that same year, 1964, something else happened in terms of historic preservation. Well, just a few blocks away, a young woman named Dana Crawford. She had come downtown one hot summer day and her car stalled back in the days when people had vapor lock. Her car stalled on the 1400 block of Larimer Street and she fell in love and she decided to develop it into Larimer Square. And Dana Crawford, now the namesake of the Crawford Hotel, 
largely responsible for the re-envisioning of Union Station and indeed the saving of Larimer Square, Denver's oldest block. And much of Lodo. But uh, I guess she missed the Tabor Grand Opera House by a little bit. Just a bit. Well, speaking of demolition, I understand your grandfather, Mark, won the contract to tear down a different building, the Old City Hall. The Old City Hall, it was the pride of Denver in uh, 1881 when it opened, but it was rendered obsolete when the city built a city and county building up on Civic Center. And it became the police headquarters for some years, Uh, then the police built their own, the fire department used it as their headquarters, but it was considered an eyesore and the city decided to tear it down. I have to say, I have always assumed that the city-county building Mm -hmm. that exists today, it's imposing and old-looking enough that I thought it was always the city seat, but it was not. It was built in 1932, or finished in 1932. Do you miss the old city hall in the way that I miss the Tabor Grand Opera House? Well, I mean, I do. It would, it would, I think it would be a nice thing to have on the corner of Larimer Square, which is where it was. Yeah. Right across. My family told me when I was a small child, about six years old, we were visiting Larimer Square with my grandmother, and we parked in that parking lot across from Larimer Square, and my mother pointed out the bell, the old brass bell that's sitting there on that cement pedestal. Oh, I've never noticed it. It's right there across, you know, right there on the corner. Next time you're down there, check it out. But this bell was City Hall's bell. And the family legend, which I cannot verify, was that it was my grandfather's idea to save the bell and put it there. So different from being saved by the bell, I guess. guess Saving the bell itself. He he didn't like tearing it down. He actually felt badly about it. He he liked to build things, not tear them down, but he needed to feed his family. And uh, he was the low bidder when they put out uh, requests for bids. Well, thank you so much for being with us. I guess it's time to vanish ourselves. Okay. Mark A. Barnhouse is the author of Vanished Denver Landmarks. We spoke in July. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to a team that's still standing. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us.